You're listening to. You're listening. You're listening. You're listening to. Sex gets real. Sex gets real. Sex gets real. Sex gets real. With Don Sarah. With Don Sarah. Thanks. Bye. Hey everyone, it is another episode of Sex Gets Real, and this week I have Andrew Gerza joining me. But before we dive into Andrew and who he is and what he does, I wanted to remind you that Patreon supporters of the show uh, not only have access to see an exclusive clip of the porn that I got to make at Erotic Film School last week with Andre Shakti and James Darling. But I just announced that on April 17th, we will be having a Sex Gets Real pajama party online. So if you support at the $3 level or above, you will get access to the link to join in the fun. It's going to be at 8 p.m. Mountain Time, which is 7 p.m. Pacific, 10 p.m. Eastern, if you're in the U.S. and Canada. On April 17th, we're going to spend an hour just hanging out online. I will answer your questions. We can geek out over whatever is going on in your lives. We can talk about who you'd love to see or hear on the show in the coming months. Um, And we can just spend some time like being ourselves and hanging out. So if you you want to support the show, you can go to patreon.com slash sex gets real. You can't search for it because it's sexually related content. And like every place on the interwebs, they block us in so many ways. So you actually have to type in the URL of patreon.com slash sex gets real, but you can support at a variety of levels. And if you do $3 or more, then you get access to this online PJ party where we're just going to hang out and have fun. And of course you can check out that clip from erotic film school. So this week we have Andrew Gerza joining the show. It is such a fun chat. I was grinning from ear to ear for so much of it. Um, And let me tell you a little bit about who Andrew is, and then we will jump into the episode. So Andrew Gerza is a disability awareness consultant and cripple content creator working to make the lived experience of queerness and disability accessible to all. His written work has been featured in Huffington Post, This Magazine, The Advocate, Everyday Feminism, Mashable, and Out.com. He's the host of Disability After Dark, the podcast to shine a bright light on sex and disability, which is available on iTunes. And Uh, We talk all about sex and disability and fetishism and body politics and ableism. We also geek out about Orphan Black, and he compares himself to Leslie Nope from Parks and Rec in this really sweet part where we were talking about flirting. Um, Just a quick note, about halfway into the interview, um, my mic fizzled out and got this terrible echo, which I did cut out, but I switched to a different mic. um, And the sound is just a little bit muted for the second half of the show for me. So you'll hear a a different sound. But um, this is just uh, an episode that I'm super excited for everybody to check out. So let's dive in to this week's show. Welcome to the show, Andrew. I'm super excited to have you here. I'm so happy to be here. Thank you so much. Yeah. Okay, so before we get in 
to all the things I want to talk to you about. I just have to kind of like super freak out for a minute and say, I saw that you got to be in a room with the orphan black cast. I died. It was Oh my God. I would die. <laughs> I died. It was so <laughs> amazing. They had a, they had a live reading the beginning of the, of this month in Toronto and I just I decided back in like February, I was like, oh, the tickets are like 50 bucks. I'm totally going to go. And I went and it was like, and I didn't get to meet any of them or anything, but it was literally like, oh my God, <laughs> you're in a room with me talking over black. <laughs> okay. It was, it was literally the, the great, I love that show to yes. a point of like, why did it have to end? <laughs> I know. Forever. (laughs) (laughs) I don't know what I would do with myself if I had a chance to be in a room with all of them. And like, this isn't even remotely comparable, but last year I spoke at a gender and technology conference and one of the talks were these two PhD candidates and their entire PhD was about Orphan Black. That's amazing. <laughs> I know. And so they showed like all these clips from the show and they were like doing all these analysis on like eugenics Ugh. and like sexism within Orphan Black. And like I geeked out so much over that. But to actually be in a room with them would be amazing. It was. And you know, it's funny. My friend's brother was on stage with them. He, my friend's brother was the, his name's Nick Rose. Hi, Nick, if you're listening. Um, he, uh, he was, he's Colin, the, the morgue tech from season one. So oh. he, he was there doing a bunch of voices cause they couldn't get the whole cast. So he was like subbing in for them. And I was like, oh my God, this is you. And you get to speak with them. <laughs> <laughs> I geeked out. That's my show. And I guess the reason why I love that show so much for like, because as somebody who's, who has felt othered. Mm-hmm. That show, I don't know, just speaks to that part of myself. And I'm like, yeah, I totally identify with all of this. <laughs> yeah, there is so much about the just the show and the, the how smart it is and the diversity of of the personalities and the characters. And I mean, like, you can't go wrong with Tatiana just in the way she portrays all of those different roles. It's amazing. She just, I mean... And it was so cool because you'd think they'd come out wearing, you know, you know, proper, like, evening attire because it was an event. They came out in sweats, and I was like, oh, my goodness, I love you even more now because you just, you just, it was so relaxed and, like, comfortable, and you were just in a room, and it went. It was supposed to finish, like, around 11.30, no, 10.30, and they went for another hour and a half because people were like, I have a thousand questions, and... Tatiana said, can we just let it go for a while? <laughs> and everybody was oh. like, yeah! <laughs> that's so incredible. Oh my gosh. Well, I am like envious in the most loving way because that sounds fantastic. <laughs> we, could do, we could do a whole cast about, we could do a whole podcast about that show and how much we love it. <laughs> oh my God, for sure. Um, okay, well, so I know that you just said that one of the reasons you love Orphan Black is because you have this um, feeling of of otherness and that that show kind of allows for some of that to come out. And so for listeners who aren't familiar with you, would you share a little bit about your story? Sure. Um, there's, my story has a few different facets. I am 32. I live with a disability. I live with cerebral palsy. Um, I'm non-ambulatory, so I'm a wheelchair user. 
and I work primarily as a disability awareness consultant, which is a term that I apparently stole from other people who are doing it. But uh, <laughs> I, uh, I am a disability awareness consultant and crippled content creator. So I work primarily in uh, the world of disability and queerness and sexuality and all those things. Um, uh, really, I, I'm a queer man with disabilities, and I, I refer to myself quite openly as a queer cripple. Um, some people find that term offensive, but I find it as really empowering because it turns all of that stuff, all the shame, all the fear, all the anger around different bodies and otherness on its head. So I, I wear that label quite proudly. Yeah, I know that so much of what you have been doing, especially lately with um, disabled, is just being unapologetically vocal about your disability and your experience with disability and like naming the things that people are hesitant to talk about or are scared that they'll fumble and and just kind of being ultra like vulnerable and upfront about it. I think that it's like disabled kind of just came to me because I had seen some really other, some really cool campaigns like disability is not a bad thing uh, by my friend Karen Hitzelberger. I think that's how you say her last name. She's a really prominent disability activist and has written some really great stuff around that. So I saw, I saw what she was doing and I, and I love the idea of playing with language and playing with words and playing with disability branding. Cause I find that a lot of, Stuff around disability branding is so boring. Mm -hmm. It's so bland. And it's so like, let's talk about access and let's talk about not seeing the disability and let's talk about all this other stuff that isn't really related to the lived experience. And I just wanted to play with that. And one day I was sitting right right where I am right now and I was sitting on my computer being like, what if I play with the word and what if I just call, said disabled? And I was like, wow, it's a thing. And then I just turned it into a thing and <laughs> said, let's run with it. Yeah. I love it. And, and, you know, everyone who's listening knows that like vulnerability and awkwardness are totally my jam. Like it's my jam. I'm there with you. Yes, exactly. Like I want all of us to get better at, at like vulnerability and resilience and also just like living in the awkward. Cause I feel like we spend ridiculous amounts of time in our lives trying to avoid feeling or being awkward. And like the reality is we just have to be awkward and, and like so much of your blog specifically, and also the things that you do are just being so upfront about like the awkwardness and the vulnerability and your experience with like your body and sex and, you know, your experiences with people that you've had sex with and lovers. And, and I, I adore that so much, just kind of like, let's just sit in this uncomfortable place and see what happens. Yeah. I mean, I, I sit there all the time and I think so much of discussions around sex generally are clean. They're, they're, um, slick, they're sexy. They're supposed to, they're marketed that way. And I'm like, oh, no, no, let's just, let's get into the dirty stuff. And and I don't mean dirty, like sexy dirty. I mean like the dirty, <laughs> nitty gritty, like stuff and sit there with the stuff and be uncomfortable with the stuff. And let's talk about what that feels like, because what I learn in my work all the time, whenever I give a talk or whenever I do it, whenever I get feedback on anything I do, people go, oh, I never really thought about that. And it's mostly because they were too afraid to. So I'm not afraid to because it's my life. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I totally agree with you on um 
you know, one of my missions in life as a sex educator is to kind of push against that like polished plastic wrapped version of sex of where like, if you know the perfect technique for something, then sex will never be awkward and you'll always be amazing. Or if you wear a certain type of clothing or lingerie, you know, like nobody will ever judge your body. And instead just kind of saying like, no, we're all kind of struggling and we all have feelings about our bodies. And like specifically for me as someone in a fat body, you know, my body is not represented out in the world as sexy. And so like, how do we start naming those things? And I, I see you doing the exact same thing with your experience of sex and disability and just kind of like, I'm not seeing myself represented. And so let me show you what my experience is and, and how you can still have these experiences, you know, in a body and in an experience that a lot of people would try to either like ignore or invisibilize. Yeah. I love, I love the, the, the fat body movement and people talking about being fat and saying the word fat in an empowering way is, I just think it's so, so important because I, I am not like, I'm a queer man, but I don't and cannot fit that, that very particular aesthetic of white, cisgendered, able-bodied, like down to fuck all the time kind of, um, aesthetic. And so... I have a bit of a belly and I'm, you know, I, I own that. I own that as part of my experience too, That, which is why I also sometimes use the bear in a chair hashtag <laughs> because I just think it's fun to play with that. And to, it really makes people talk about a different body. And I, so I think fat body politics and talking about that is really, really cool. Yeah. There was actually a phrase that I saw in a description for a documentary that, that you were in um, that said, gay body image fascism, which I loved. And I know you've also talked about a lot of kind of the masculinity myths and ideals that exist within gay and queer men's culture and these expectations of how, you know, sexy gay bodies should look and how gay men are supposed to interact and how queer men are supposed to show up in spaces and kind of turning that on its head and saying like, no, I'm sexy and I, I can exist in this body and I don't have to conform to those ideals. And something else that you wrote about that I loved too, is you were talking about how exhausting dating can be because it reminds you of how many men are terrible communicators. Oh my God. And I thought that was really interesting too. Just kind of like the socialization around like emotional intelligence and empathy and communication. Right. Yeah. I mean, gay men, queer men, men generally, but especially in my experience, queer men will talk to you if you are engaged in very particular types of queerness. So if you're down to fuck, we can talk about dick size and cock size and all the things we want to do to each other. That's that's a really easy conversation. But if I really want to have a conversation with you about what I need from you or what I want from you from the experience, all of a sudden you shut down. Because, oh my goodness, I'm asking you for too much and I'm asking you for... I'm asking you to like be a person with me, and if I'm gonna get naked with you, I, I th- when people say people say to me all the time when I talk about what I'm looking for in a lover or partner or some kind of quasi romantic thing that I want to do, they'll say, "Oh no, don't don't expect too much," and I'm always like, "Well, why why can't I expect something? Why aren't I allowed to have expectations?" And so people will also tell me that because I'm disabled, I you know sometimes I ask for too much. And I'm always like, no, I don't think it's too much. I think that we've been so conditioned to believe that we're not supposed to ask for things 
when it comes to partners. We're supposed to just be grateful that they're there. And I don't really believe that's true. Oh my God. I love that so much. I like, oh my God, my brain must go like 7,000 places. So, um, and I, I think that that narrative around we're supposed to just be grateful and we're not supposed to ask for things is especially true for people who are not white, cis, male, able-bodied humans, right? And so if you're a woman, if you're trans, if you're queer, if you're disabled, if you're in a fat body, right? It's like, well, because you're not considered sexy and so your currency is therefore culturally lower, you should just be grateful that someone's even showing up. And so then when you start actually asking for things, it starts to feel like this, this too much phrase, which I hate so much. Um, and I think I mean, you're so right. And then, oh, go ahead. Does that happen in in your experience as a fat person, do you feel does the same kind of thing? Does it overlap the feeling absolutely. of being too, too much? Yeah, absolutely. There's this, um, there's this feeling I've had in the past, especially within like hookup situations of, of just kind of like, you should feel grateful that I'm having sex with you. Right. And so yeah. then because, and because I spent so much of my life internalizing that I wasn't lovable or sexy or fuckable because of the body that I'm in. I, I agreed with that and I didn't ask for the things that I wanted. And I ended up in situations that often didn't feel good because I wasn't asking for what I wanted because I was just feeling like, well, if this person's showing up and I've been told no one else is going to, then I guess I should just go with this. Right. Yeah. I mean that feeling and, 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 you know, if I'm really, really honest right now, I haven't had a lot of good sex. I've had a lot of sex, but I have had very rarely good sex. And it, it, it is because of that. Well, no one else has showed up, so I guess I better do this because I wanna, I want to have that release and feel that emotion, and and so I'm gonna do it because I think I'm supposed to. But if I really thought about the majority of this, my sexual partners, if I really narrowed it down, I probably wouldn't have slept with a lot of them because it wasn't what I wanted. What is when you think about? you know, those instances when sex has been like good, what does that look like for you? Actually, not a lot of sex, a lot of emotional, like let's hang out, let's flirt, let's like make out a little bit. And then maybe we won't have sex and maybe we will. Like it's not really about sex so much as it is about like, let's connect. Like my, the issue with, I think a lot of queer male-on-male sex, in my experience, is that it's really hookup-based. It's really much like, hey, you're five feet from me on that app. Why don't I come over and suck your dick and then I'll never see you again? That kind of stuff. And I did that a lot in my 20s. That was a lot of my, pretty much the majority of my sexual encounters in my 20s was, was that. That's not really what I'm looking for. I'm looking for more of like, let's hang out. Let's nerd out together. Let's sit and spend an hour talking about Over and Black. And then... Maybe we'll make out, or maybe we won't. But if there's like if there's like a a sense that that I might see you again, that's more important to me than if you whip your dick out and we have sex. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think you're so right. Like when I think about like transcendent sexual experiences or moments of intense pleasure with another human being, right? It was about that connection and feeling seen 
and and less about the fact that like body parts were doing xyz yeah like and you talk about being seen as a disabled person and i'm sure as you know as a, as a fat identified person like being seen is so critical and when you when you get a glimpse of that from somebody even if there's no sex happening when you get a glimpse of being seen that is like the sexiest feeling you could ever have because you're like wow you just saw me for real and you didn't run away what the fuck (laughs) okay yeah yeah and you know you actually wrote about something that was really powerful so um a couple of years ago i went to a sacred intimate and i had this like really beautiful experience with this sex worker who um allowed me to kind of be touched and to receive in a way that felt really radical for me and you've written about um, an experience that you had with a sex worker. And at least from what I read in what you wrote about, it seemed like this really beautiful experience of being seen and held and centered in this exchange. And I, I frequently recommend to listeners that they seek out a professional when they are in a variety of circumstances. But I'd love to know a little bit more about kind of where you are now with that experience and, and maybe share what feels good about that. That experience was great. Unfortunately, the individual and I don't speak anymore. Things kind of broke off after that, and we don't have the most happiest relationship with each other. Um, But the event itself was important for me. It was um, something that happened after a 10-month inability to access sexuality for myself. So I really took it upon myself to engage in that experience. Um... And to own the fact that I was going to hire this person, and this was for me, to reconnect with myself um, and reconnect with my sexuality. And that's what I love so much about about that experience was that we got I got to finally be touched and finally be finally reconnect with what I with what made me feel sexy. Um, I think that because of the the personal issues that I have with the the worker in question, sex work. Me and sex work, it's a weird thing again because I am one of those people that gets really attached to people even though they're doing it professionally. My like my emotional attachment is like, wow, we did a thing. Now we have to be like the best of friends. So it's I haven't engaged in it since then. Uh, I would love to again, but I would need to really sit with the with the worker and talk about kind of my emotional availability and and all those things because. That experience was so powerful for me that it, you know, it knocked the professional relationship off course. And that Mm -hmm. was problematic, I think, for both of us. I love that you are able to kind of name, looking back, your your needs around your emotional attachment and being able to set those expectations. I mean, I think that's something that all of us need to examine, whether we're in, you know, long-term relationships or friendships or, you know, going through hookups. You know, I know um, I've had a number of listeners write in who have felt really hurt by hookup situations because afterwards there was like zero communication and they felt like they had had this beautiful exchange. And so now they wanted something more afterwards. And so even just being able to articulate that, I think is so important. Yeah. And I mean, something more, I think for disabled people or anybody who's other and engaging in sex, the whole idea of sex is okay to be sexualized is fun and great and important. But I feel like a lot of the times after you have sex, 
as a person who's been othered, you feel kind of empty because like, okay, so I've, I did the thing. Great. What about what? What about the rest of it? Like for me, I've never been in a long term relationship. I've never had somebody say like, hey, I want to get to know you outside of being naked with you sexually. Like I, I so. I am always constantly searching for like a little bit more and a little bit like what's what comes after me sucking your dick like why can't we like what comes after us being naked what what's the rest of that and so hookups and that experience with the sex worker it was great and I will never forget it but because I didn't get the more it almost felt like oh okay so I did it great but where what comes next yeah, that's a really good question to kind of be able to ask yourself and also to ask people that you're engaging with, right? Of like, what comes next is important to me. And so can we talk about that before we get to a point where I feel empty and like, I'm not even sure how I feel about that encounter anymore. So yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I know you were um, something else that you wrote that's kind of a little bit in this vein Um that I really connected with is you were talking about how you had gone to a therapist and you were talking about your experience with sex and relationships and, and your disability and that this therapist at the end of you kind of sharing all of these things um, and wanting this help and support had no idea kind of how to support you because they hadn't worked with somebody who had cerebral palsy or was, had a disability the way that you do and and kind of this education you had to do with the therapist and like I know I've had to educate therapists before about like kink and how kind of emotionally exhausting that is to go to someone for support around these issues that we already feel kind of sensitive around and then have to educate the professional we're going to and yeah. I know you were specifically calling for like there are no visibly like disabled therapists that you have access to and and to have therapists who really don't understand um, disability and the way that you move through the world it, it is hard. And I'd love to know kind of um, what what has happened since you kind of wrote about that. Have you had anybody come forward or or have you met any therapists who are disabled? Or, you know, I, I know that a lot of people that listen to my show are professionals. So I want them to just kind of have that seed of like, don't put the emotional labor on the person that's coming to you when, when this kind of thing comes up. I actually, after I, I, cause I posited that in Canada, we had the bell let's talk day a few months ago to talk around mental health. So I was putting, I'm doing a bunch of tweets about that. And P I was saying, Oh, there, I was reiterating. There are no, you know, disabled therapists. And people were saying, actually there are, but they're really, it's hard for them to get into the market because, of disability and accessibility and all those things. So I learned that they are out there. You just have to really seek them out. And I think what's more important for, I think, because I've done the conventional um, therapy where you sit across from the therapist and tell your, tell your life story, and then you expect them to, like, give you this awesome, like, thing at the end where they answer <laughs> your questions, which I learned very quickly doesn't happen ever. Um, <laughs> but... So I did that. I've I've done that a couple times through my university career, and then um, and then again just a couple years ago. But what I think is really important for people with disabilities is support groups. I mean, I know like sitting in another room with another disabled person where I could say, like, yeah, I've been through that too. Like, yes, I've done that. Yes, that's happened to me. Yes, like 
that's I think for me right now at this point in my life is more important for me than sitting across from a therapist waiting to be like quasi diagnosed with something because being able to say like yeah I went through that shit with you that shit and so did you like that's great it makes you feel really connected to the to an experience better so I'd like to see more disabled like support groups where we can talk about this stuff and not in, in a solely negative like oh my god the world is ending because I'm disabled kind of way more like I'm disabled this happened let's talk about it there needs to be more of that and I think there needs to be more people saying let's find a space to do that and let's have a bunch of people with disabilities come and just talk and let's see what happens I think if if there were more groups that were that were open to just having people with disabilities just talk whether it's they're whether they're in a happy space or not so happy space i think things would change immensely mm. yeah there was this interesting um exchange that happened on your facebook page recently where you had shared an article and you were expressing some frustration around like we shouldn't be constantly trying to cure disability right like not all of us want a cure and someone said I would like a cure. Like, that's my story. I would like a cure. And then people were kind of weighing in on their experiences with their own disability and their feelings about, like, potential cures and, and you know, experimental therapies. And I thought it was just so powerful, the fact that people were even able to have that conversation and articulate that. Um, I think you're right. It's so important that we're able to just say, like, here's my experience and have other people say, here's my experience. And they can all be true. Yeah, and like imagine, and that, and somebody. That's why, like, I I responded to that person, and I said, you know, because they said, you know, is it really? I do want a cure. Here's what I want, and I said, yeah, that's why I said sometimes, and I said your your experience is valid as fuck, and I'm I'm here with you, like I, I'm I'm there with you because, and I'm not gonna pretend like some days I don't want to be like, you know, I really wish I could get out of this chair and walk around. That like. What I was saying really about the cure was the institutional idea of cure of being cured and being fixed needs to be looked at. And so when we talk about cures and fixes in terms of disability from a grander scale, what we're talking about is institutional ableism. And we're talking about fixing all those disabled people from their horrible, horrible lives. That's not... <laughs> those conversations need to be... need to stop and need to be morphed into how does disability feel generally? And so if, if somebody wants a cure and that's genuinely their experience, I'm not going to tell them that that's not true. I'm going to say, yeah, some days, you know what? Some days I do want that too. And that's what I want. Some moments I, my disability pisses me the fuck off and I don't want to have it. Yeah, that's a really honest and true feeling that I have. So when I talk about not wanting a cure or not wanting to look for a cure, um, what I'm really saying is, Let's remove the institutional ableism around the idea of a cure and a fix. I mean, I'm sure you've had a similar experience in a fat body. There was a whole bunch of pressure for a fat body person to lose weight, to oh, be healthier, to all those things. So when I see things around institutional ableism and institutional body shaming, it's just it's just so sad because it's like, especially when it comes to kids, when it comes to like the next generation of queer cripples <laughs> like when i see kids being pushed into this medical model of disability and not being allowed to celebrate who they are today and being told they have to they 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 like have to to walk or have to 
gain better abilities or never like lose their ability all this stuff it's like well what if you just told the kid from a very young age that they were disabled and that's okay like what if what if you use like not to plug myself and I'm totally not but what if you were to use like something like the disabled campaign to teach a kid to teach a young kid like five six seven eight that, that it's okay to be disabled and it's okay to have a different body much like we have the gay straight alliances that are that are happening now which i think are great and are amazing and i fully agree with all of them but i think we could also have like disabled able alliances like have a, gr- a mixed group of like young kids with some with disabilities and some without talking about for real talking about like ableism and talking about the time that so-and-so was on the playground and so-and-so said that horrible thing and here's how this person felt and then here's how the able-bodied person felt about saying it and have them really talk about that stuff but everybody is afraid to do that especially institutionally because nobody wants to offend the disabled kid so nobody says anything and it's better if you if you skirt the line of offense by genuinely having questions and i think the young when people ask me about my queerness and disability and they want to ask me about like basically the big question is can you have sex and does your dick work it's like the the two questions that I get all the time. Um, so when, but when they ask that, if they ask that with a genuine like, you know, hopefully then they won't start with like, "Hey, how does your dick work?" But if it's like, "Hey, I see," <laughs> like if it's like, "Hey, I see you have a disability and I want to learn more," my pants would be off and I would be like, "Let's go fuck over there because what you just said," turned, <laughs> like, because what you just said turned me the fuck on. So. I think that that the way that we talk about these things and I think the way we don't talk about these things is creating a big barrier. And if we just talked about it and gave people the space to be comfortable, I think we'd be able to... Or actually, no, I'm going to rephrase that. The space to be uncomfortable, I think, is really, really important. Disabled people can be ableist, too. Like, yeah. disabled people... And I have done it, and I as I grow into this work... There's a lot of language that I have retired that I won't say anymore because I'm learning that it's not appropriate. And I have, like, I've done it. And so, like, I genuinely respect when someone says, oh, I fucked up. I'm so sorry. Like, I have friends who, it's it's Transgender Day of Visibility today when we're recording this. And I have friends that I, that have, you know, that I have misgendered or said something inappropriate. And been like, oh, fuck, I'm so sorry. Like, I'm sorry. And we've moved on. So mm-hmm. so I think the same goes for disability or anybody who's been othered. If the person genuinely is like, I'm trying to connect with you and I fucked up, I'm sorry, like then then I then I don't give them a pass, but I say to them, All right, let's you know, that's fine. We'll we'll work on it because I, I know you didn't mean it. Okay, so I know one of the things that you really love geeking out about is flirting. And I feel like that's the perfect place to kind of like shift a little bit because flirting can be super awkward but kind of in like a cute sweet way and also just a really fun way to play with language and to kind of get to know people and so I would love to know for you like what about flirting do you love and what does flirting look like for you well what you can see right now is that I'm in my in my studio blushing like full (laughs) (laughs) that's what people can see um what flirting looks like for me is like me 
really what it really looks like is me sitting in the corner being like, hey, I think you're really cute, but I'm not going to go over to you because I'm afraid of you. And I'm afraid that you're afraid. Of, like, and I'm afraid that you're afraid of me. So, like, I don't and I don't do it. A, like, for me, flirting happens mostly in the digital realm because just in terms of accessibility, Andrew getting into a bar is just not really plausible. So I don't have a lot of face-to-face flirting. So I, I flirt a lot on the apps. And I find my personality in the apps is very much gregarious and like, hey, I'm here, I am, no big deal. Whereas in person, if I saw the same person, I'd be like, I'm going to go stand in the corner and not talk to them because I'm too scared. Like, but if you get to know me, if you like come up to me, even though I'm terrified, I'll babble and gurgle and be weird. Like, I'm, based, I'm, I'm just thinking about it. I've been watching a lot of Parks and Rec right now. Uh-huh. I'm basically Leslie Nope. When it comes to, like, my romantical desires are fully in line with Leslie Nope. I want to, I want to have all the best friends, and I want to love everybody. But I'm afraid to tell you that because I don't want you to think that I'm. Again, it goes back to being too much, and I'm afraid that if I tell you that I think you're cute, or if I tell you that I think you're hot, or I want to fuck you, that you're gonna be like, "Whoa, that disabled guy talked to me about sex. What? Shocking!" And so, like. Flirting for me is like, hey, you want to just come over and watch Netflix and stare at each other and hope that things happen? Like, it's, really, it's, it's super, like, I'm, I'm, and because I'm also, I haven't, when I was 16, 17, you know, for certain people, they learned how to, not certain people, the majority of people who maybe have not been othered, but you learn a very specific way of how to um, flirt and date and do all those things. When I was 16 and 17, I was busy having spinal fusion surgery and I was busy doing a lot of disability stuff to better my body to head off to college. So I wasn't learning. I didn't get the chance to engage in like the young love moments where you get your heart broken and you do stupid things and you try all this stuff. And, you know, almost, (laughs) almost 16, 17 years on, I still haven't gone on what I would consider a proper date where I thought the person liked me or where I felt like, Oh, I'm not the only one feeling the spark of whatever's happening. Um, So a lot of my flirting is weird because I feel like because of my disability, I'm a little bit stunted. So I may, I may be like physically 33 years old, but like emotionally as a romantical person, I'm 17 because I've never, I didn't get to do any of that stuff when I was younger. Well, that makes me feel better. I feel the exact same way. Like, I'm so glad. Yeah, like in my head, I'll be like, oh my God, I should totally like make eye contact and smile and like say something witty. And like in that moment, the only thing I can do is just like look down and turn around, right? So, like, (laughs) yes. Yes. (laughs) I love that. And I love to just like, hey, you want to just like watch Netflix at my place and hope something happens? Yeah, I feel like that's so many of us for so many reasons. (laughs) I mean, you know that Tegan and Sarah song, Closer? That video was basically my, that's pretty much me flirting right there. It's come over and let's hope that stuff goes down. And even if it doesn't go down, the fact that it might go down is more exciting than if it actually did go down. So like, (laughs) there's there's a lot of like teenage stuff that I haven't resolved because and I think partially because people are afraid of disability and they're afraid of sexualizing the disabled. And so, and I'm afraid of, be, of I was afraid when I was younger of, you know, being sexualized because I was, I came from a very small town where 
being queer and disabled was not cool. And then when you go to school, when you go away to school, you think, oh, well, everything's going to change here. What I really quickly realized was that even though I was out, my it wasn't cool to be queer and disabled. So um, all those experiences, I'm 33, still waiting to, like, let my 17-year-old self be like, hey, want to nerd out together? Like... <laughs> <laughs> oh yeah <laughs> there's yeah. just like so much in that oh and I'm wondering like um I talked to Robin Wilson Beatty about this a little bit too uh and isn't she the best she's fantastic I love her so much fantastic yes I had her on the show um I think last year sometime and we had like just such a blast geeking out and laughing and she's so great um, and we were talking about like being fetishized. I, in my life, have have not felt very good about being fetishized for my body. Um, and so she was talking about kind of her her feelings about being fetishized. And I'm wondering, like, have you had any experiences with that of people who fetishize disabled bodies and wanting to be near you because of that? And and if so, you know, did that feel good or did that feel bad or have you not encountered it? I'm curious. Um, I was fetishized once when I was in college, like really, really fetishized where the hookup person that I had met was like, oh, my God, I love your chair. Your, your chrome wheels are turning me on. And at the time I was like, oh, this is weird. Like, no. Um, but it's funny because I will in order to, to meet sexual partners or lovers or as part of my kind of personal like growth and brand I have in a way positively tried to fetishize myself so like I'll say to people like oh let me be your first queer cripple guy that you're gonna sleep with let me why don't you touch my joystick like like, so there's there's (laughs) there's a little there's like I think fetishization of disability or anybody who's othered it draws a really fine line because you can go to that place where it's too much too fast or you can go to the place where it's like you're seeing me and you're seeing this is part of me and that's okay. And so for me, like, I like men with red hair and big muscles and big dicks. That's a fetish. And I will totally admit that that's my, that gets me like, that gets me like bodied and I'm all about that. So like, <laughs> so like that, I mean, that's a fetish. So why couldn't somebody say, hey, like, I think your wheelchair is super hot. Or, at, no, well, maybe they would have to say, like, I think you in your wheelchair is super hot. Like, that and I think it's also the way you deliver that. Like if somebody was like le- like leering at me, being like, "Hey, your wheelchair is super hot," I'd be like, mm, "Okay, I'm gonna go over here." But if they were like, <laughs> "Hey, I, like I think you and your chair is super like yummy," let's let's explore that. I wouldn't really be um, concerned. I'd be concerned if they were like, "Oh, so you're disabled? I'm gonna disable you more." Then I'd be like, "Okay, yeah, that's a problem." But if it's if it's in like good fun about them learning about about the disability and if it turns them on, why not? I had a a guest on my podcast a few months ago who is a devotee, and for those who don't know what a devotee is, that's somebody who is sexually attracted to people with disabilities. And so we had a whole hour long conversation about devoteeism, and she mentioned that she had met her husband on a devotee website, and now they were married. And I was like, wow it blew my mind about how people think that it's some scary fetish when really it can build community. So I think that if you fetishize disability and otherness 
with consent in the right way, I think it can be really sexy. Yeah, I agree. I think where it gets kind of bizarre is when you don't see me as a person. You just see the the thing about my body or perhaps like your chair, right? Where it's not about Andrew and the your sense of humor and all these kinds of things and the chair. It's just the chair and it doesn't matter who's in it. Right. Like yeah. I think that's for me kind of where the line is, but how wonderful that you had this, this guest on your show who met her husband that way. And they were able to like really bond over her desires and her fetish and to create this relationship. Like that's fantastic. It was super great. And I can, when we're off the air, I'll give you her name and you should definitely have her on because it's a really interesting conversation. Oh, thank you. Okay. Yeah. That would be great. Um, okay, so you wrote about something back in February that I would love for us to touch on, um, and and it was this deeply vulnerable post where you were talking about how for most of your life, you have been able to masturbate yourself using your um, thumb and forefinger and to achieve and experience your own pleasure in your own body and to kind of give yourself this release and that you had recently had a change in how you were experiencing your hands and that you weren't able to actually masturbate. And I'm wondering kind of has that changed since you wrote that and kind of where are you now? Uh, it hasn't changed since I wrote that. I'm, I'm working now on some more physio to to get that moving again um and i'm i am trying to like i've actually gone on craigslist and posted things like hey i'm disabled and queer and i need help masturbating like no literally i need help masturbating could somebody please like assist me with that because i'm trying to find ways to get that release without you know being just being honest about it and so like i i still can't but it's also taught me that sexuality and sex and yeah that release is important but it's also diving me into my work and it's given me a lot to think about the kind of sex that I want and the kind of ways that I want to look at sexuality and so like like I said for me the sexiest thing right now would be having somebody come over and like watching Netflix for a couple hours and then making out without any expectation of like I'm gonna touch your genitals now I mean if they if they did that'd be great but like like what I want from the from my experiences now are not like necessarily the 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 simple release. Like, yeah, that would be great, and if that happens, I'm gonna I'm gonna enjoy that moment. But I want more of an emotional connection with the people that I connect with. And this inability to masturbate, it's troubling because how do I how the fuck do I adapt to that now again? But it's teaching me to look at the sexual the sexual spectrum and sexuality a lot more broadly and with a lot more respect for the little things that aren't genitally related. And if someone did reply to your Craigslist ad, like, would you be looking for someone who could like Netflix and chill and then masturbate you? Or would you be interested in someone who just wanted to come over and like jerk you off and then go get their groceries? Like, are, is the connection even for that kind of space, something that you would be interested in finding? I've had guys say I can come over and jerk off and then get my groceries. And that, you know, that's actually really, it was weird when they, when, cause they, they said it almost literally like that. And I was like, oh, um, <laughs> that's odd. So I, I, I thanked them and said, I'm not quite looking for that. Just, I mean, you, yes, but no. So 
I think that I would want something more deeper than just I'm going to jerk you out. Like, and I also want them to, because I mean, sex for me is so much about the other person. For me as a disabled person, sex is so much of like, did I do it right? Did you enjoy yourself? Am I acceptable? Am I okay? Did I make you come? Did did like did I do my part? So to even putting the post out there and asking about like can can you masturbate me? The whole idea of them not getting any kind of pleasure out of it also was weird for me. Like sex for me is so much about. I mean, I I think in the kink community, I I wouldn't say that I'm a full submissive, but I'm very much a, a pleaser. I very much like to please my partner. And so if I couldn't, if they were going to get me off and then go get their groceries, like that's, I would hope that they enjoyed themselves too. And, and so I'd want something a little bit deeper than just, I'm going to drink off and get your groceries. That makes total sense. I would feel the exact same way. <laughs> I'm, I, there was something else that you said while you were talking about that, that I, oh, it'll come back to me anyway. Um, so I'm wondering for people who are listening you know, I think that culturally we know that, or I would hope that people listening to the show know by now, um, that, you know, there's this kind of ableist view that folks with disabilities, especially visual disabilities, um, are asexual and or sex is not important to them. And one of the things I love so much about what you do is you are just so vocal and upfront and and visible about your sexual needs and your sexual experiences and your desires and the mistakes and the awkwardness and the fact that you want sex and you're horny. And like, I just love that you're saying like, here I am and here's my experience. And I'd love to know for people listening, like what's the one thing you really want people to understand about sex and disability? There are like 10 things I want them to understand. Um, but the one big thing is like, see my chair, see it. Don't, don't tell me. And I've had guys come to my house to fuck me and go, oh, yeah, your disability is no problem, no big deal, it's okay. And then, then we'll start doing the, like, realities of what I need. And they'll go, oh, I didn't realize you were that disabled. I didn't realize you needed that much. So before you before you start to engage with anybody, like, sexually or otherwise or romantically or even just as, as a friend, if they are using a mobility device or if they have something that markedly shows them as being disabled recognize that like recognize don't say to them like oh i don't see your disability well <laughs> what because i do and like the sexiest thing you can do is say like hey andrew i see you i see that you're in a wheelchair and i have no fucking clue what to do with that but i'd like to learn more and then maybe suck your dick like <laughs> i'd like to get to know you better and just like just be honest about your ignorance be really upfront about how your ignorance without being rude about it. Like, don't ask me, like, don't ask me what happened. And don't ask me if my dick works. And especially, don't ask me if my dick works as you're about to go down on my dick. Don't, please, that, like, future lovers, anyone listening, and anyone who, who <laughs> might want to sleep with an individual with a penis who is with disabilities, don't ask them if it can work as you're about to go down on it. It's just rude. It's just rude. Bad form. <laughs> Yeah, well, and, like, talk about, like, let's make this as unsexy as possible. Like, hey, by the way, does this work? I mean, like, that's not in any way getting me more revved up about what's about to happen. It's happened to me where they're in the middle of things, and I've written about it. There's things, 
there's moments where I've been with guys where they're in the middle of about to put their mouths on my genitals, and I'm all into it until they go, oh, can you get it up? And I'm just like, well, I could, I could have, and I was. <laughs> but now I'm not. not. Anymore. Yeah. So, I mean, I think the one thing, and it's going to sound so cliche, but it's really about own your ignorance, and I'll own my otherness. You own your ignorance, I'll own my otherness, and together we'll work together. But just, like own it and say like I don't know I, I don't I'm not aware I've never done this before because some of the sweetest people that I've had that I've had sex with have said to me at the beginning I don't know what I'm doing and it's really hot because it's there's a power play there then all of a sudden I have the currency of like the knowledge of disability and I get to like bring them into this world in a sexy safe comfortable way where we don't have to, where or where we can be, I was going to say where we don't have to be un, we, uncomfortable, but that's not true. Where we can be <laughs> uncomfortable together in, because the whole, even if I like the person and we're having really great sex, which, as I said, is rare for me. But if the sex is really good, I'm still, I'm that uncomfortable little 14-year-old kid inside being like, did I do it right? Is it okay? Do they, do they like me? Am I accepted? So, like, I think that, if we own that and I can own my weirdness and I can own all those things and I can own my otherness and all that stuff. And if you or the person that I'm spending time with owns the fact that they don't know shit about disability and they're just learning, that's a big turn on for me because it means that we can learn together. I love that so much. And you know, that, that requires kind of dropping that bravado and that, you know, culturally I think we're taught like you always need to be great in bed and you always need to know what you're doing. And so it really takes vulnerability and it takes some courage to actually say like, I don't know if I'm going to be good at this and I'm not really sure what I'm supposed to do, but maybe if we figure it out together, then something like really fun can happen where we're like both there instead of me pretending um, and shutting down. And now we're having this like really like stiff, awkward, disconnected experience which sounds way less sexy <laughs> like wouldn't it be great if in your favorite porn like somebody stopped and said hey i don't know what i'm doing but i'd like to like, let's have a fun time together figuring it out that would be the hottest thing i'd ever watch because it would it wouldn't it wouldn't show that like we all none of us know what we're doing and this whole bravado like you were saying the whole bravado of like i have to know i struggle with it all the time even now of like when I engage in any any kind of sexual relationship is that I have to know how to have sex and disability. And guess what? I have no clue. Like, I don't know what I'm doing. And I, I own that. And I just, I just kind of want to get naked with somebody or not naked and see what happens. And I'm really, I'm very comfortable with being uncomfortable. Well, I'm so glad you just said that about the porn because I just got back last weekend from learning how to make porn and I am looking for all kinds of ideas. I want to do like really like subversive and like culture changing porn. And so yeah. the fact that you were just like, let's have porn where people are like, I don't know what the fuck I'm doing, but let's figure it out together. My, my little like porn brain was like, note to self, make a porn that does that. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> it would be so like, can you imagine kids? Instead of stumbling on the polished, like, over-veneered porn, stumbling on that for the first time and being like, oh, you're representing me for real and I can jerk off to this because you also don't know what you're doing, that would be, I think, just a game-changer. 
I so agree. Oh my gosh. I hope all of us can embrace that phrase. (laughs) 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 Well, I would love it, Andrew, if you could share with everyone how they can find you online and stay in touch with social media, because I'm sure lots of people listening will want to hear more from you. Sure. I can be reached on Twitter at Andrew Gerza. That's A-N-D-R-E-W-G-U-R-Z-A. Um, and then on Facebook at Andrew Gerza One and my personal website where all my blogs and podcasts are hosted, um, www.andrewgerza.com. Nice and easy. That's easy to remember and makes it easy to find you. So I will have links to all of your social media and website on sexgetsreal.com for this episode. And Andrew, I just want to thank you so much for coming on the show. This was so fun and like fascinating and delicious and wonderful. I had so, I just had a great time. It was, it was so fun. And I, I'm so excited for people to hear it and to just allow, I could, I could talk to you for another hour. It was just so fun. I know, me too. I feel the same way, which means you will just have to come back on the show at some point. (laughs) I would love it. I would love it so hard. Good. Well, to everybody listening, if you want to stay in touch with Andrew or if you have any questions or comments, of course, you can go to sexgetsreal.com and send me a note. You can also submit your listener confessions. This month's theme, of course, is messes. So I want to hear all about your literal messiness and or your emotional messiness. So please check that out and the guidelines. And I will be talking to you next week. Bye.